The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello, I'm Sam Holmes, and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Every week, a few of our favourite writers read their pieces from the latest issue. This week, we'll hear from Melissa Kite on the ambitions of Ben Wallace, Mary Wakefield on our misplaced faith in forensics, and James Heal on Eaton's Great Awakening. First up, Melissa Kite. Captain Fantastic. The Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, is on manoeuvres. It was during the Afghanistan crisis last summer that Ben Wallace decided he had what it took to be Prime Minister. He'd suspected it before then, according to friends, but during the evacuation of Kabul, the Defence Secretary came to a definitive conclusion. His prediction that the Taliban would take Kabul had been proved correct when other ministers involved had failed to see it coming. And as the desperate situation played out following the US withdrawal, he hit his stride. His row with the then Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab over the fall of Kabul was a turning point for the way he saw himself, insiders say. Raab was caught off guard on holiday. Wallace was on top of his brief, cancelling a weekend away, deploying British troops to the airport as the Taliban advanced, declaring that he had known the game was up months ago. He even defied public hysteria to speak out against the apparent diversion of military resources to rescue the cats and dogs of Penn Farthing's animal sanctuary. While much of the establishment echoed public opinion in defending the airlifting of pooches alongside people, Wallace, a former captain in the Scots Guards, said he found it upsetting and not something I would be proud of. He took a lot of stick from Farthing, a national hero at the time. It was almost six months later that an inquiry into this episode concluded that he was right to be concerned. Foreign Office memos released in January suggested that in the middle of the crisis, Boris Johnson had intervened after his wife Carrie and her animal campaigner friend Dominic Dyer had pushed for the government to help the dogs. Crikey, I remember thinking at the time, this guy's even standing up to the vegans. We should not entirely scoff, therefore, at the idea that a minister whom few of us knew anything about until recently is being touted as a possible successor to Johnson. With the Ukraine conflict uppermost in the public's mind, the idea of a military man in number 10 is certainly a comforting one. Perhaps the time has come for a soldier to take charge of our response to this chaos. Seems to be what many are thinking, causing Wallace's popularity to soar. Tory members, according to the latest survey, rate him at the very top of a list of possible candidates, with Liz Truss second and Rishi Sunak at the bottom, the beleaguered Chancellor having bombed in the approval ratings since the revelation about his wife's non-dom status. Wallace is undoubtedly as astute in military matters as one would expect of a former soldier who has served in Germany, Cyprus, Belize and Northern Ireland, where he was mentioned in dispatches in 1992 for an incident in which the patrol he was commanding captured an IRA unit attempting to mount a bomb attack against British troops. He was also injured in service, a punctured eyeball, so he's obviously brave. The problem is, for all his many fine qualities... Robert Ben Lobben Wallace can come across as a bit of a chump. That's not really a criticism, more a statement about his personality type. 
these Sandhurst officer chaps can be a bit, well, full of themselves. Public school educated, the son of a soldier in the 1st King's Dragoon Guards who saw service in Malaya, a former ski instructor with the Austrian National Ski School, it's all rather bloody good blokish. His attitude can seem a bit cavalier, to say the least. In the run-up to Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine, which, to be fair, he predicted, he complained that the European response to the mounting crisis had the whiff of Munich. And while his handling of Ukraine has been assured, he rather too enthusiastically boasted that Putin had gone full tonto and that the British army could kick the backsides of the Russians. Well, hurrah and huzzah, one is tempted to reply, as if one were in the company of General Melchett in Blackadder. Critics complain of the mania of his ambition and the fact that there is something comical about his daring do. He's always on manoeuvres, is the gossip in the Commons Tea Room. He earned the nickname Captain Fantastic when he became a member of the Scottish Parliament and the Herald newspaper noted his relentless optimism. His attack on the culture of heavy drinking at Westminster, while no doubt a serious topic, elicited raised eyebrows and gasps of hilarity from those who claim Wallace was more than a little committed to being the life and soul of the party. He plays the military card too enthusiastically. His picture on the government website was recently changed to one of him in a camouflage jacket to emphasise his war leader credentials. During a visit to Swedish Lapland last December, he put on a big black furry Russian hat similar to the one Margaret Thatcher wore during a visit to Moscow in the 1980s as he announced that British soldiers must do more cold weather training to be ready to face the growing threat from Putin. The fact that another leadership contender, Liz Truss, wore an identical fur hat two months later on a visit to Russia in spite of a thaw in the weather only heightened the sense of posturing. And then there was that hoax call How seriously can we take a minister who spends 10 minutes on a video call with a Russian prankster posing as the Ukrainian prime minister, with all the security implications that potentially entails? I need to speak to my prime minister. The principle is we will support Ukraine as our friend in the choices you make, said Wallace, striking an earnest tone. Before the questions became so absurd, he terminated the call and went on Twitter to complain about Russian disinformation, distortion and dirty tricks, which is a lot of words to say, I've been had. The video has now been taken down from YouTube, but if you Google Wallace, it is still one of the top items that comes up and one suspects there is a chance it always will be. That said, we should remember there was once hilarity about the fact that Theresa May fancied herself for the top job back in the early 2000s. The story went that she overheard someone in the Commons tea room describing her as Thatcher-esque, when what they had really said was statuesque. Nevertheless, having become enamoured of the idea, she did eventually become Prime Minister, and arguably not our worst one ever. Another parallel, perhaps, is with the former Tory leadership contender, David Davis, who made much of his SAS, brackets, territorial prowess when he pitched for the top job. But that is a cautionary tale. He fancied his image as an action man so much that he forgot to write his speech to the Conservative conference until the very last minute, leaving the way open for David Cameron to make a tub-thumping address without notes, setting him on an unbreakable path to victory. Davis, it should be remembered, posed with girls in tight white t-shirts emblazoned It's DD for me, allowing the impression that he was a hit with the ladies, 
while being somewhat dismissive in comments about his long-suffering wife, Doreen. Wallace married Lisa Cook in 2001, four years before becoming an MP, and has three children. She worked as a part-time parliamentary assistant in his office until 2019. They separated a year ago. He's a Johnson loyalist and one of the original gang of supporters who urged him to stand for the party leadership when he was still mayor of London. He ran the PM's first leadership campaign after Brexit, which crashed and burned when Michael Gove threw a wobbly. Wallace's analysis of Gove was scathing. Michael seems to have an emotional need to gossip, particularly when drink is taken, as it is all too often. UK citizens deserve to know that when they go to sleep at night, their secrets and their nation's secrets aren't shared in the newspaper column of the Prime Minister's wife the next day, or traded away with newspaper proprietors over fine wine. That is all very well, so long as Wallace isn't going to trade secrets with any more pranksters on video calls or get into any other bother. The consensus about Wallace is he's fundamentally decent. After the US withdrawal from Afghanistan, he was asked... Why do you feel it so personally, Mr Wallace? He replied with emotion, because I'm a soldier, because it's sad and the West has done what it's done and we have to do our very best to get people out and stand by our obligations. When Johnson goes, one feels sure that if called on to serve, Captain Fantastic will stand by his obligations. That was Melissa Kite. Next, it's Mary Wakefield. I grew up in the golden age of forensic science at a time when expert witnesses were becoming celebs, each with their special little area of crime-busting know-how. The papers were full of excited talk about hair microscopy, ballistics and fibre analysis. Crime scene investigators were hot as pop stars. My brother and I had a nanny with a passion for gore. She wasn't interested in me as a rule, but I could always hold her attention with a nice chat about blood splatter patterns. We discussed what you could tell from the trajectory of arterial spray or the shape of a drip. Over in America, Herbert MacDonald was the undisputed blood splatter king. I think he might have even invented it as a discipline. He appeared regularly on TV with his array of droplet charts, explaining via PowerPoint that a round splat meant a vertical blood drop and a flatter, more tear-shaped droplet meant blood sprayed forcefully at an angle. Herbert was, in his day, known as the modern Sherlock Holmes and was so pleased with the idea that he took to wearing a deerstalker hat. Each country seems to favour a different forensic science. In England, I'd say it's the polygraph test. In the mid-1920s, Agatha Christie wrote them into The Secret of Chimneys. Quote, They put India rubber bands around your arm, then reconstruct the crime and make you jump, explains Lord Caterham. By the time I was a teenager, it was near compulsory for all TV cop shows to feature regular lie detector tests. A close-up of the sweating suspect then another of the sudden spiking of the polygraph needle. What did it all mean? Who knew? And who needed to know? We trusted the science. The slapdash days of Starsky and Hutch were over. Men and women in lab coats had taken charge, and soon, surely, crime would be a thing of the past. I did wonder why, if lie detector tests were so reliable, the police didn't just use them on every suspect. But I never really doubted the machine. My early conditioning was too strong. I believed in the polygraph test in an unthinking way right up until last week when I read a new book by M. Chris Fabricant, Junk Science and the American Criminal Justice System, which carefully and unarguably explains that almost every forensic science is unreliable and most are entirely bogus. 
It's not just polygraphs, says Fabricant, but the whole damn shooting match. Arson investigation, hair microscopy, bullet lead analysis, voice spectrometry, handwriting and bloodstain splatter analysis. The list of discredited forensic techniques is considerable, writes Fabricant. And unlike Sherlock MacDonald, he knows what he's talking about. Fabricant is a trial attorney and also director of strategic litigation at the Innocence Project, a New York-based charity that seeks to overturn the convictions of men and women who have been wrongly convicted. The Innocence Project uses real science, DNA analysis, to combat the bad science. To date, they successfully overturned more than 300 convictions just by using modern techniques to properly examine old DNA evidence. It's a measure of the power of the process that in 40% of all DNA exoneration cases, detectives had identified the actual perpetrator based on these DNA test results. The question becomes why, writes Fabricant. Why has junk science been accepted by courts unanimously for the past 50 years? And why, for that matter, are we still depending on it? Just last year in Britain, the counter-terrorism bill sought to impose a mandatory polygraph on all high-risk offenders. And as a book review in this magazine recently pointed out, polygraphs are still routinely used in the US by law enforcement and intelligence services, by the military and in parole hearings. In some ways, it's reassuring to think that there are professional cops who would be as surprised as I was to learn that forensic science is bunk. And in other ways, it's not reassuring at all. Of the 330 people exonerated by DNA tests between 1989 and 2015, 71% were convicted based on forensic testimony. The particular focus of fabricant scorn are bite mark experts, or forensic odontologists. If the British weakness is for the polygraph machine, then for unfathomable reasons, expert dentistry seems to be America's forensic science of choice. And it's a useful one to examine, because it's so easy to see the hucksterism at work. Before, lemming-like, I cancelled my Netflix subscription, I watched a documentary, The Innocence Files, which tells the appalling story of one of Fabricant's clients, Levon Brooks, wrongfully convicted of the murder of three-year-old Courtney Smith. Late one night, in September 1990, Courtney was taken from her bed in Brooksville, Mississippi, raped, murdered and left in a pond. When her body was found, the county pathologist, one Dr Stephen Hain, declared there to be possible bite marks on her wrist, and he called on his regular sidekick, a forensic dentist called Dr Michael West. Levon Brooks was a suspect because he'd once dated Courtney's mother. So West took a cast of his teeth, then compared the teeth to the marks on Courtney's arm and just simply declared Brooks was the perpetrator. It was this man indeed, indeed and without any doubt, he said. How could a jury disagree? Another book about the grisly Haynes-West partnership, The Cadaver King and the Country Dentist, points out that West also began to assume the role of expert in other forensic fields, in ballistic, gunshot reconstruction, tool mark patterns, and the analysis not only of teeth and bite marks, but wound patterns, bruises and fingernail scratches. Why not? All you needed for expertise was a course and a laminated certificate. God knows how many innocent men the Haynes West tag team sent down. 
In 2008, after nearly two decades of wrongful imprisonment, Levon Brooks was exonerated by new DNA evidence, but West remained unrepentant. I find it embarrassing indeed to keep repeating my credentials, he said to camera, his jowls quivering with outrage. I'm not going to say nothing, do nothing or be nothing. I'm here to advance the question. Did this man do this act? Yes or no? If that makes me controversial, suck it up, buttercup. There's nothing, not even DNA evidence, that could ever have persuaded West that his methods or even his conclusions were wrong. His science is unfalsifiable. Therefore, it's simply pseudoscience. Suck that up, buttercup. That was Mary Wakefield. And finally, James Heal. Eaton Mess. Speak to Tory ministers of a certain background, and the question of succession soon arises. But the position they're talking about is in Windsor, not Westminster, and has nothing to do with skipping a generation of the monarchy. Pretty soon there'll be a new provost of Eton, and, thanks to a quirk of history, it's a crown appointment. With so many old Etonians in this government, including the business secretary, Brexit opportunities minister, and the prime minister himself, there's no shortage of opinions. The incumbent, Lord Waldegrave, is expected to leave his post shortly, after 13 years, and at a time when a battle is being waged for Eton's soul. When exercising their power to advise the monarch on her choice, recent premiers have deferred to the school's preferred successor, but with Boris Johnson, nothing is ever conventional. Unofficial campaigns are underway. Newspaper columns have begun touting candidates. For no matter how much British society changes, an unwritten rule always seems to apply. Etonians end up on top. Perhaps this is why the school remains a constant reference point in any discussion about education, as one rival public school headmaster notes, where Eden goes, we all follow. Among the old Etonians on the Tory benches, of whom there are even more than you might think, there is a critique of Aldergrave which echoes that of the OE in Downing Street. The power of the provost lies mainly in his ability to appoint Eden's headmaster. The charge against Waldegrave is that, to shore up his own power, he appointed an inexperienced head, much as Johnson has an inexperienced cabinet. As a result, Waldegrave has been much more involved in the day-to-day running of the school than he should be. Eaton's current troubles date back to Simon Henderson's arrival as headmaster in 2015, ushering in one of the most contentious periods in Eaton's 580-year history. Henderson made his initial pitch as a quasi-Blairite with a passion for modern management techniques. He defined himself to the Daily Telegraph as a normal sort of guy, donning a tie for the photographs and discarding it immediately afterwards. He tweets, he displays books by the patriarchy-smashing feminist Laura Bates. Age 39, he was the youngest Eaton headmaster in history. Perhaps I'm not everyone's perception of what the Eaton headmaster would be, Henderson said, but I am the one they've got. What Henderson lacked in experience, he made up for in reforming zeal. He arrived suggesting the school's famous tailcoats might be banned. He is said to disapprove privately of Eton's single-sex setup. There are now only four, Eton, Harrow, Sherborne and Radley, boys only, boarding only, public schools left, since Winchester agreed to admit girls last year. Eton's great awakening has led to the school genuflecting at the hastily assembled altars of progressive causes. A speaker from Stonewall was invited to lecture the school about gender transitioning. The pride flag has been hoisted by the school's gateway. Eton's newly created Director of Inclusion Education has spoken of a desire to see the BLM1 fly there too. All of this has not been universally popular. One gay pupil wrote about how the reforms of Trendy Hendy made it hard for him to come out because identity politics has made the issue deeply contentious in a school whose students, he says, had always been relaxed and open-minded. Last year, an English master, Will Noland, was dismissed for refusing to remove a talk on toxic masculinity from his YouTube channel. More than a thousand boys signed a letter in support of him, citing diversity of thought. Benefactors proposed withholding substantial sums. Last week saw yet another protest against Henderson's reign. The school's huntmaster retired, with no replacement appointed. Beagles have been kept on school grounds since 1858, and this is one of the last remaining school packs in Britain. 
but the hounds have now been relocated to a local hunting society, prompting fears they might never return because Trendy Hendy would abolish the Eton College hunt completely. This was too much for the boys. They took to the streets in their hundreds, gathering in the school's central courtyard. It was a legate, a rare form of Etonian protest, and the largest in a decade. The school caved and promised that the hounds would return. What also enrages Henderson's internal critics is the autocratic style with which progressivist changes are pursued. This is epitomised by the leadership's base in the newly constructed office block, mocked by staff as the Tower of Power. A centralised senior management team now rules from there in lieu of the traditional headmaster's study. In this way, power is shifting from headmaster to an executive leadership team. Both boys and masters are deeply wary of such changes. The boys' resentment towards the corporate management style was a key factor in the Beagles' row. Indeed, one Eaton source suggests that Henderson's modus operandi rankles to as much as his fashionable goals. The boys feel they're left as the guardians not only of the institution's characteristics, but also its processes. Many masters fear the erosion of their autonomy, given Henderson's changes to management posts. The lower master has traditionally overseen pastoral functions, a job that has long been merged with responsibilities for extracurricular and boarding. They have now been split between several deputies. Changes to Eaton's house system are feared to be in the offing, with boys being allocated houses rather than choosing them. One former teacher complained there is demoralisation and a lack of trust aside from the ideology agenda. Henderson's various changes don't appear to have booted Eaton's academic record. Its number of Oxbridge offers halved from 1990 to 48 between 2014 and 2021. His supporters point to the expansion of social outreach initiatives such as increasing scholarships. Others ask where his dogmatic style risks endangering any good work he has done. A string of departures has occurred since his installation as head, by no means all of them in amicable circumstances. A leaked internal master's questionnaire shows mounting disquiet and serious challenges relating to disciplinary structures and the perceptions of masters. The Bishop of Lincoln even got involved in the dispute, allegedly over Henderson's reforms under a visitor of Eton rule that dates back to the school's foundation and that allows prelates to mediate conflicts within it. This was thought to be the first time the rule had been initiated in 200 years. The school's finances can't have been helped by the decision to hire the services of expensive CTPR firm Brunswick. Their arrival was revealed shortly after a staff reported receiving thank you notes and £9 bottles of Prosecco from Henderson in January, a rearguard effort to shore up his flagging support. The Provost of Eton has always been one of the most consequential positions in British education. Eric Anderson, Waldegrave's predecessor, was involved in educating three future Prime Ministers. Another, Henry Martin, taught constitutional history to Queen Elizabeth II. Her great-grandsons, George and Louis, might well study there too, just as Princes William and Harry did in the 1990s. But now the Provostship offers the chance for an Etonian reset. Already the list of potential successors is growing. Leading the pack are two diplomats, Sir Geoffrey Adams, recently retired as our man in Cairo, is widely tipped as a safe pair of hands. His main rival is Sir Mark Lyle Grant, a former National Security Advisor known as a Waldegrave loyalist. Sir Mark is an Eton Fellow, as is Baroness Helena Morrissey, a city financier, regarded as a dark horse candidate. Johnson's own ministerial interests advisor, Lord Gite, might be an appointment too, tempting to resist. Then there's Henry Benningham, a long-standing Conservative MP now in the House of Lords. Various Tory parliamentarians have sought opportunities to lobby the Prime Minister on his behalf, but such overt campaigning might not help. The view among the OEs at the top of government is that Bellas is overreaching. There is precedent too for a former headmaster to return as provost. Tony Little, Henderson's predecessor, would represent a steady hand on the tiller. Another contender is Nicholas Coleridge, the great Rajandrum of Condé Nast, though as one interested party suggests, it might be difficult to imagine his Hollywood smile beaming from the provost's lodge. Boris Johnson once remarks that he wanted thousands of schools like Eton, but with his former stomping ground undergoing an uncharacteristic identity crisis, he might now conclude otherwise. That was James Heal. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed it, please rate and review this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, and pick up this week's issue to read more great articles like these through. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back with another Spectator Out Loud next week. <laughs>